Let's open in the Word of God this evening to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. And as we read this chapter, I want you to pay attention to the concept Father and Heavenly Father, and then also in connection with what we just sang, that our Heavenly Father is the Omniscient One. He knows. Matthew chapter 6, we'll read the entire chapter together. Take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them, otherwise ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth that thine arms may be in secret, and that thy Father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the street, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet." And when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and the Father, thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them. For your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. After this manner therefore pray ye, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward, but thou, when thou fastest, Anoint thy head, and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light is, that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, Or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. 
Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body, what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body more than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you by taking thought can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. We read this far in the holy and inspired word of God. The text for the sermon this evening is the first four verses of the chapter where Jesus says this, Take heed that ye do not your arms before men to be seen of them, otherwise ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore when thou doest thine arms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest arms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth that thine arms may be in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. We've been working through the Sermon on the Mount, and we come in Matthew chapter 6 to a new section. In chapter 5, Jesus has been teaching us about the inner man, the inner aspect of Christianity or of what the Christian is. He does that first by describing in the Beatitudes the spiritual characteristics of the children of God. They are poor in spirit. They mourn. They hunger and thirst after righteousness. They are peacemakers and so on. And then in the second part of the chapter, with five examples, he shows that sin goes much deeper than the deed or the action, and obedience must as well. Your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And you can think, for example, of these penetrating words of Jesus, whosoever looks on a woman to lust after her in his heart has already committed adultery with her there in his heart. And so Jesus, we could say, is teaching in Matthew chapter 5 the principles of Christian ethics. And he does that all the way through in contrast to the external religion of the scribes and the Pharisees to teach us that Christianity is not simply a religion of practice, 
but that the Christian who is, is one who is transformed by the power of the grace of God so that he lives his life from the inside out, that is, from the inner man to the outside. And what Jesus has taught us in Matthew chapter 5, we could say, is the groundwork for all our Christian living. And now in this new section in chapter 6, Jesus is going to talk about Christian living. We could break this chapter, we could summarize this chapter, first of all, this way, as the Christian living his life in this world in the presence of God. I asked you to pay attention as we read the chapter to God our Father and what God our Father knows. And over and over again, Jesus says, your Father which is in heaven, your Father which sees in secret, God the Father sees and knows, and we must live our lives before Him. So we live the Christian life in this present world in the presence of God. And the chapter divides into really two parts, two parts of the Christian life or two aspects of Christian living. In the first 18 verses, we might call it our religious life or our spiritual life. And we're going to look at that this evening and in the coming sermons. And then from verse 19 to the end of the chapter, we might say Jesus is talking about our life in relation to the material world, our life out and about in the world of economics. And you see how comprehensive what Jesus is teaching here is. It, it has to do, on the one hand, with alms and prayer and fasting, and then on the other hand, with work and, and money and wealth and worry. And that's living the Christian life in this world in the presence of Almighty God, our Father. We have labeled this sermon, the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher that ever was. And you see how practical Jesus' instruction is. That doesn't mean that it's devoid of doctrine. In fact, in this chapter, there are two outstanding doctrines. The first is the doctrine of salvation by grace, and we're going to see that in the verses that we consider this evening. There's no reward for what we do. We earn nothing. Salvation is by grace. And God is sovereign. We'll see that in this chapter as well, because that's exactly the point that Jesus makes about living your life in the material world. The sovereignty of God means not only that we are saved by sovereign grace, but that we live under the providence of a sovereign God. And that's really the test of whether we trust the sovereignty of God. And so really what Jesus is saying is these things, these great truths of grace and sovereignty, they matter for your life. They matter for how you live in this world before God. And now he's going to tell us how they matter. And it's very confronting. Jesus brings us, front, brings us face to face with ourselves. One commentator said this, the Christian should always be anxious to know about himself. And that's what Jesus is going to teach us more about ourselves. Not to increase our guilt, but to improve our godliness. So let's consider tonight 
The first four verses under the theme, how to give. Notice with me first the underlying principle, second the secret practice, and then third the Father's reward. How to give the underlying principle, the secret practice, and the Father's reward. There's a course in seminary that teaches you how to make sermons. It's called homiletics. And it teaches you how to put a sermon together so that there's a line of thought in the sermon that can be easily followed by the listener and leaves the listener with something to believe or to do. There's a purpose in the sermon. And usually that is shaped this way with a theme and three points. And that's what we have here in the first half of Matthew chapter 6. Jesus, the master teacher, gives us a theme in the first verse, and then he develops it in three different thoughts or points. The theme in the first verse has to do with living, not before men, but before God. And then Jesus applies that in the area of giving alms, prayer, and fasting. I say verse 1 is the theme. In verse 1 we have the, we, we could call it the underlying principle, not only for the first four verses here, but for this whole section that goes through verse 18. Take heed that ye do not your alms before men. The word for alms here is in most translations, in most translations, your righteousness or your righteous deeds. Take heed that you do not your righteous deeds before men. And so it's not limited to just the idea of what you do for the poor, but it applies to all of Christian living. Take heed that you don't do your Christian living to be seen of men, the practice of your religion, your good works, your religious exercises. And the principle, the underlying principle that Jesus lays down in the first verse is this, that the practice of your religion as a Christian is not something that you ought to do to be seen by others. But it is deeply spiritual and something that you do before and to God. That's the principle here. In this whole first half of the chapter, the Christian life is not to be lived before others, but it's deeply spiritual and we live it before God. Christianity, unlike all the other religions, is not a religion of externals and a religion of rituals and a religion of practices. You can observe other religions and that's what they're all about, rituals and practices. Jesus states this very strongly. Take heed. That means beware. Pay attention to this. Be intentional about this. Most often we are paying attention to the exact opposite to this as we live out our religion, our Christianity. We are concerned to be seen. And Jesus is saying, I want you to think about that in completely the opposite way, that you put your effort into this, that you don't live to be seen. You don't live to be seen of men. In the end, it really doesn't matter what others see or do, because as a Christian, in the end, you live your life before God. 
to him, to his glory, as unto the Lord. And that's a principle, not just here, but something that you find throughout the scriptures. Think, for example, of what Jesus says in John chapter 4 about worship. They that worship the Father, he says, are not going to do it here or in Jerusalem. It really doesn't matter where. But So it's not about the external. But they that worship the Father must worship him in spirit and in truth. And the Father seeketh such to worship him. So this principle applies to every aspect of our worship. And that's especially the application that Jesus makes in the first half of the chapter here, isn't it? Alms, prayer, fasting, all acts of worship, not to be seen of men. Take heed that you don't do those things to be seen of men. But it applies in all the areas of the Christian life. It applies in the area of work. In Ephesians chapter 6, Jesus, uh, uh, the Apostle Paul speaks concerning work. He says that we should do our work not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Think of how, how much he repeats that idea. Not as men pleasers, from the heart, as servants of Christ, doing the will of God. Not to men, but to the Lord. It applies to work. In fact, it applies to all our obedience. Proverbs 3 verse 1 puts it this way, My son, forget not my law, but let thine heart keep my commandments. Let thine heart keep my commandments. And so the psalmist says, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. And again, I have set the Lord always before me. That's the principle here in verse 1. It's not just negative that we don't do things to be seen of men, but it's positive that we live in the consciousness of God. And this is the biblical idea of the fear of the Lord living before his face constantly conscious that we are in his presence, knowing him, knowing him as the all-knowing one, the omniscient one. As we sang in Psalm 139, there's nowhere to go from God's presence. There's not a word in my mouth, but God knows it all together. He's the searcher of the hearts. And there's the basic principle of Christian living, not before men, but really and truly in the presence of God. And what's beautiful about the way that Jesus describes that here in the Sermon on the Mount is that we are remembering not just that God is great, God is in heaven, God is all-knowing, but we are remembering that God is our Father. We're remembering the relationship that we stand in to Him that's what Jesus emphasizes, so that we don't live before God with terror in our religion. We don't have the thought, I can't get away from God. He's inescapable. What's he going to do to me? No, there's a motivating love in this relationship in which we stand with God. And Jesus is going to develop that in beautiful ways in this chapter. Pray, our Father which art in heaven. Your heavenly Father knows what you have need of. 
before you ask him. So remember, to live the Christian life, this is the principle here, in relation to God, your Father. And now if we look at Jesus, we see that this was the outstanding characteristic of the life of Jesus, wasn't it? He always lived before his Father, lived to please him. I come to do his will, he says. The words that I speak unto you and the works that I do, they are my Father's words and my Father's works. And I have come to glorify my Father. This was his constant life. He was constantly aware of the fact that he was God's Son in this world. And so the underlying principle again The practice of your religion as a Christian is not something to be seen by others, but is deeply spiritual, something that you do before God. Isn't that the fact that we forget that? The reason that we fail in Christian living, the reason that we fall into sin? Live. Before God. The psalmist says, I've set the Lord always before me. Since he's at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Now, this does raise a question, and the question is but don't we also have to live before men? Isn't that a concern that we should have? Jesus teaches earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Ye are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Isn't this a legitimate concern and desire that we should have as Christians to live also before men? And to do this not only before an ungodly world, but also with other believers, isn't it the most encouraging thing to live our lives among other Christians who are also living their lives in the same way to to encourage one another on? So that instead of praying in our closets, as Jesus is going to talk about that, we pray with one another. Isn't that a legitimate concern? Now, the answer to that is not difficult. It's right there in the words of Jesus when he calls us to be a light in the world. We ought to live our lives in such a way that when others observe the quality of our lives, how we live as Christians, they see God. Isn't that what Jesus says? That they may glorify your Father which is in heaven. We should never be interested as we live our lives in this world in attracting attention to ourselves, but directing away from us to God. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 5 concerning his work, we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. That was his concern, and that ought to be what attracts attention in the light of that we are, and the salt that we are in the midst of this world. Not, oh, here's a good person. These are good people. But does God receive the glory through our witness and our testimony? The grace and the glory of God is what must shine through us. 
At the end of verse 1, Jesus adds a reason to this. Otherwise, ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. I want to come back in the third point to say more about the idea of reward. But really what Jesus is saying here is that when you live before men, God is not pleased. It's one or the other. Especially now as you practice your religion before men, God is not pleased. Then it's merely empty. In Isaiah chapter 1, beginning at verse 11, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and fat of beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he-goats. This was their religious practice. And God says, I can't stand it. When you come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblation. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity. Even the solemn meeting, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hateth. They are trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when you spread forth your hands, talking about prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. And it's the exact same thing that Jesus is addressing, isn't it? External religion to be seen of men, which is, in the end, hypocrisy. When we live to be seen of men, we are really living for ourselves. In the end, it's a religion of self. Why do we do things to be seen of men? Well, it's not really to please others, but it's so that they can say pleasing things about me. We're not concerned about people's opinion of God, but their opinion of us. That's the general principle that Jesus states here in verse 1. And it's important that we understand it as a general principle because the application of it is much broader than just the three specific things that Jesus is going to apply it to, alms, prayer, and fasting. Really, it calls us to examine our motives in all that we do and our standards, the standards that we set in all that we do. Are our motives pure? And are our standards God's standards? Motives, what moves us to do something? What's going on in your mind for when, for example, you come to church? What's going on in your mind? What's motivating you? And there can be all kinds of wrong motives, can't there? Pride. I'm not like other people who don't go to church. Ritual. This is what my parents have done. This is what others are doing. It's what I'm going to do. Pressure. Along with that fear. Fear. Isn't fear a motive that drives us in so much of what we do? Fear of man. What will others think? What will others say? 
Think of that when we come to worship, how we dress, how we sing, how we sit. We've got all kinds of concerns about what others are thinking. And there's something to be said here, isn't there, about a a more relaxed atmosphere in worship where all the unspoken expectations are not there. Don't we all, in a sense, crave freedom from the judiciousness of others? Worship is just one example. In our lives, it comes out in other things like raising our children. What will we allow them to watch? What will we allow them to do on Sunday? How will we discipline them when we're in public settings? And there are all kinds of ways that we're concerned about what everybody else is thinking. And Jesus is saying here, don't do it. Be careful not to do it. Take heed. Beware not to do it. To be seen of men. Our motives, but also our standards. Standards are expectations that we live by, that we, live, that we strive to live up to. They can even be biblical standards. They can even be right standards biblically we take for example a stand on abortion or we take a stand on the sabbath and not working on the sabbath or we take a stand on marriage and the permanence of marriage but why are we doing it to be seen of men to let others see we're right so we can applaud one another and then there are standards that perhaps are not biblical but are simply traditions And we can mention traditions in perhaps the two same areas that we've already brought up. Worship, child-rearing. They may be good practices, these traditions that we have, but we may become so inflexible in areas of liberty and quite judicious of others who don't live by the same standards. And in the end, it's just about what others will see and say. And not before God. And remember, Jesus says in verse 1, Otherwise, you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. It's one or the other. Such living creates a suffocating environment, especially for new believers trying to learn what the Christian life is. You have to do this. You can't do that. And they're almost derailed into legalism because we're not living before the Lord. So that's the principle. Now in verses 2 through 4, Jesus applies it specifically to alms and almsgiving. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, and so on. Alms refers to not just giving financially to help the needy, as for example through the benevolent fund, but it refers to any sort of charitable deed which helps someone else who is in need. So we may, besides giving to the benevolent fund, which is almsgiving, we may give privately, We may also give of our time. We may use our skill to help somebody else. We may give advice to somebody who is in need. We may lend a listening ear to somebody who is 
hurting and in a bad situation. We may give someone a ride to church or a meal or run them errands or something like that. Those are all covered by this idea of doing alms, doing things to help those who are in need, all acts of mercy. Those in need, of course, are any needy person whom God places in our pathway. Almsgiving takes place especially in the fellowship of believers, but it should by no means be limited to that. And that goes back to the end of the previous chapter where Jesus says, love your enemies, do good to them. If they're hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them to drink. And this is, this is summed up well in Galatians 6 verse 10. As we therefore have opportunity, that is, as God puts the needy in front of us, as therefore we have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Now as Jesus talks about this subject of giving alms in verse 2, he makes an assumption. The assumption is that this is something that his audience are doing. He doesn't say in verse 2, if you decide to give alms, but he says, when thou doest thine alms. This was a part of their life. And Jesus is not talking here then about the necessity of caring for the poor, but the proper way to do it, the manner in which we should do it. And that assumption of Jesus goes back to the expectation that God had of his people in the Old Testament scriptures where God had set things up in such a way that the poor were always cared for. So let me read a couple of passages that demonstrate that. Deuteronomy chapter 15 verses 7 and 8. If there be among you a poor man of one of thy brethren within any of thy gates in thy land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, thou shalt not harden thine heart nor shut thine hand from thy poor brother, but thou shalt open thine hand wide unto him and shalt surely lend him sufficient for his need in that which he wanteth. Any needy one put in your pathway. You have the resources to help you. Helped him. Again, Leviticus chapter 25, verse 35, and what this demonstrates is it goes beyond the Israelites. If thy brother be waxen poor and fallen in decay with thee, then thou shalt relieve him. Yea, though he be a stranger or a sojourner, that he may live with thee. And so Jesus expects expects that this is something that they will be doing and that's important for us there should never be a question in the church about the care of the needy and the poor and every one of us has this as a duty to set aside as God has prospered us for the care of the poor but now Jesus is addressing the manner of doing that the proper way to do that and what he sets before us, first of all, in verse 2, there's a contrast here. He teaches by contrast. He sets before us here in verse 2 the wrong way to do that. What is the wrong way to do that? When thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. That's the wrong way to do it. Now, what Jesus is saying here is probably hyperbole. That is, he's not being literal. 
So far as we know, the Jews didn't give alms by blowing a trumpet. But we do know the phrase, blowing his own trumpet, don't we? And that's what Jesus is talking about here. He wants us to picture a man with a bag of silver coins walking down the streets where the poor are with a megaphone shouting out, Arms for the poor! Arms for the poor! Come and get what you need! And his point is this, that people will always find a way to call attention to their giving. And so they put their names on streets and buildings and church windows and sidewalk pavers and find all kinds of ways to call attention to the fact that they're generous. But of course, this kind of generosity which is done to be seen of men is not just limited to the rich and the wealthy, is it? And philanthropy, don't we all have subtle ways of calling attention to how we have helped others. One of the commentators points out that this is a special temptation for pastors and for churches. On the one hand, we say that in the work of helping others, the Word of God is the only power to save or transform a soul. But on the other hand, we hold up the names of men, or we hold up our institutions as though we are the ones who have done this. How much don't we promote our teaching, our positions, our distinctives, claim them as our own, when really all we need to say is that they're biblical? Because in the end, it's God's Word that is the power to save. I say this from experience working in Spokane, where not only did Protestant reform mean nothing, but reformed, for the most part, meant nothing. And so the convincing factor in working with people was this. What does the Bible say? And then we don't congratulate ourselves. In verse 2, Jesus uses a very strong word to describe the trumpet-blowing scribes and Pharisees. The word is hypocrite. That word means in the Greek literally to, or, or refers in the Greek to an actor with a mask. He's a person who's on stage and the mask is covering his true identity. And Jesus is saying that that's what it is to do your things, your religious activities, to be seen of men. It is hypocrisy. And of course, the best way to discern hypocrisy also in examination of ourselves is to, to look at private life over against public life. What am I doing all week? And then, in contrast, how am I concerned on Sunday to show myself? How am I talking when I rub shoulders in the world with the ungodly in the workplace compared to how I communicate and talk and use my tongue with God's people on the Lord's Day. Theatrics. Theatrics. Is that your religion? Jesus says they do it 
that they may have glory of men. And he's saying in the end, that's not almsgiving. It may be philanthropy, but really it's a form of bargaining, isn't it? I'll give this money. I'll do this because I'll get some praise. I'll get some recognition from someone. In contrast to that, Jesus teaches us in verses 3 and 4 the right way to do this. And the first and most obvious thing that he teaches here is that we shouldn't announce it to others. In other words, do it anonymously. That's what Jesus means in verse 4 when he says that thine arms may be in secret. Now obviously he doesn't mean that all of our acts of kindness and generosity will never be seen or known by others. That's impossible then we would never put money in the collection plate. That's not what he means. If we look at Acts chapter 11, verses 29 and 30, we see that it was well known that Barnabas had sold a field and brought the full price of the land and given it to the apostles for the care of the poor. And Barnabas was called on account of that the son of consolation, the comforter in the early church. So, This is not about secrecy per se. In fact, you see in the subsequent story of Ananias and Sapphira that secrecy was in itself a form of hypocrisy on their part. They pretended to give all, but kept back part for themselves. What Jesus means here is not absolute secrecy, but he means this that our giving and our acts of kindness for the needy should never be done in such a way to call attention to ourselves. In contrast to blowing a trumpet, it should be done as unobtrusively as possible for God and not for men. And verse 3 really gets to the bottom of what Jesus is talking about here. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth. It's a way of saying, take yourself out of the picture. Not only must you not declare to others your acts of benevolence, but you shouldn't even be telling yourself about them. That's the idea of letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing. This is a a self-congratulatory conversation with yourself, to to boost your own ego. And Jesus' word here is really the real test of whether we're doing alms in worship of God, before God. Or might we be keeping a mental record of how often and how much we help others? Might we be doing this in some way to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. May we be doing this perhaps uh, without being noticed, but at the same time patting ourselves on the back. And Jesus is saying as long as self is still part of the equation, then the act of kindness is not a true act of almsgiving and worship to God. We saw that this morning, didn't we, in Matthew chapter 25, when the one on the throne says to those on his right, when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was sick, you visited me. And they say, 
When? When? They're not part of the equation. True worship is, is about getting rid of self, getting self out of the picture, as it were. And so long as we're congratulating ourselves, letting our left hand know what our right hand has done, thinking of how we will be reflected in the minds of others, what they might be saying about us behind our back, which is complimentary. Jesus said, you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Our only hope in worship, rather than being mindful of what others might see and say, is to be consumed with the amazing grace of the Savior for us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, this is what the Apostle's talking about. We, we know the verse here, 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, it has a kind of a Christmas ring to it, and perhaps you've heard Christmas sermons on it, but there's a context that's important. The verse is this, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Beautiful. You know grace. And this is grace. Christ who was rich became poor for you. And he did that to lift you from your poverty so that you might be rich. Undeserved generosity. And now what's the context? The context is exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Alms. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth and he's telling them, I'll be there in about a year on my way through to Judea. There's much poverty among the Christians in Judea. And he writes two whole chapters to encourage the Christians in Corinth to, to get busy with collecting week after week so that they will have this money ready when he comes to them. But he doesn't go on and on at length about the hunger or the famine. He doesn't show them pictures of emaciated children. But rather, he wants them to keep their focus on this. The grace of God towards them. Here's the motivation for their giving. He doesn't want to pressure them or manipulate them, but he says, let every man give, not grudgingly, nor of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And he ends the whole section of those two chapters with this wonderful phrase, Thanks be to God for His unspeakable gift. So you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Keep your eye on that. Keep your eye on what Christ has done for you. And then, rather than doing your Arms before men. You'll do them in secret before the Father who sees in secret. That's the key to keeping self out of your giving. There's one more thing, and it's the idea of reward. It's both in verse 1, otherwise you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. In verse 2, 
Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. And then verse 3, Thy Father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. Reward. We ought not be troubled by the biblical idea of God rewarding us and rewarding our good works and rewarding us according to our good works. Some want to throw out the whole idea of rewards as though it's somehow Arminian. And then they would say it's more noble to live the Christian life for its own sake. It's enough of a privilege that I'm a Christian. I don't need a reward. And I don't need to be motivated by the promise of heaven or the threat of hell. And it all sounds very pious, but it's not biblical. The Bible's teaching is that we ought to desire the reward. And the essence of the reward is to see God and to enjoy the perfection of heaven in the presence of God. And in that desire as Christians, we live in hope and longing. And this is our motivation. We persevere. You have only to go back to the Beatitudes to see that this is the way Jesus teaches. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's a proper and a holy ambition. I want to see God. We're told about Jesus himself in Hebrews chapter 12 that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. We're told concerning Moses in Hebrews chapter 11 that he chose to suffer with God's people in Egypt because he had his eye on the recompense of the reward. He was far-sighted, And that's what Hebrews 11 is all about when it talks about living by faith. They looked for a city that had foundations whose builder and maker was God. The reward. And Jesus holds the reward before us here as a great motivation to persevere. The reward is not that in the end you'll get the praise you deserve, but the reward is this that openly, openly refers to the great judgment day when everything will be open. Before all, God will reward thee openly. Then we will stand before the great white throne. God will receive all the praise. Christ will be exalted. Grace will be magnified. God's elect will be rewarded with glory and joy. And the judgment day will be the great theodicy, a vindication of the righteousness and the justice of God, a day in which he will be all in all. And the point that Jesus is making here is that there is a reward. It's a reward that I will have earned for you. And it's a reward that you will receive on that day in all its fullness to enjoy forever. And in view of that reward, he says, persevere, press on. In what? In this. Take heed not to do your arms before men. Press on in this, that you don't live the Christian life in this world reflected in the minds of others. What are they thinking? What are they seeing? How are they judging? No, you live your life before God. And as Jesus speaks of rewards here, there's a contrasting reward. They, he says in verse 2, have their reward. 
that they may have glory of men, that they may be seen of men. They're rewarded. The reward is that others notice that they give them accolades for a little while, that their ego is boosted, but it's temporary, fleeting reward. A little praise from men, that's all. And Jesus is saying here, there's no reward from God for those who seek it from men. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father, which is in heaven. So the question that we're left with this evening is this. Before whom do you practice your Christianity? And for whom do you live as a Christian? Is it before men? Then you have your reward from men. Or is it before God? Then your Father, which sees in secret, will reward you openly. Amen. Father, we're thankful for the instruction of Jesus here. Certainly it's penetrating and convicting. And certainly it exposes to us hypocrisy in our own lives as well. We pray, Lord, that this word will purify our hearts and our motives so that we learn to live more and more unto thee, before thee, not seeking praise of men, but for the glory of thy name. And to do this with perseverance in light of the promise that the Savior gives us here. In his name we pray. Amen.